0: Stage director John Caird and set designer Johann Engels are backstage at Lyric. Although he writes his
1: stage directions very, very specifically, a director-designer team really can only take those as hints, I think. And from that, you know that as a pair, you have to create a world, a world that is as coherent visually as the score is coherent musically.
2: I knew the piece from recordings, but I was totally unprepared of how overwhelming it was sitting in the
0: fourth row and at Bayreuth, It was just uh, an experience I will never forget. Welcome to another edition of Backstage at Lyric. This time, we present an audio transcript of the Discovery Series session for Parsifal by Richard Wagner. The Discovery Series consists of panel discussions with the singers, directors, conductors, and other creative talent from the Lyric Opera season. There is usually one session per opera, and they generally take place a few days prior to the opening of each production. For more information about the Discovery Series, including ticket information, visit lyricopera.org. And now we turn things over to Lyric Opera of Chicago dramaturg Roger Pines, your moderator for this Discovery Series session for Parsifal.
3: Parsifal draws us into its own universe, creating a spell quite unlike that of any other work in the operatic repertoire. This piece, which is the last of Richard Wagner's 13 operas, achieves something possible with only the greatest works of art. I love a, a summing up comment in a conversation I had with a celebrated interpreter of this opera, baritone Thomas Hampson, who is portraying Amfortas in lyric opera's production. He said, Parsifal invigorates our inner life as human beings. That is absolutely to the point. The spacious pacing of the piece, its depth and sensitivity and spirituality, and finally, its sheer uplift give an opportunity that we, as an audience, don't always have in the opera house, to use music drama to examine our own worldview, our own ideas regarding the basic questions of life. The opera takes us to Mont Salvat, the castle where, surrounded by a brotherhood of devoted knights, Amfortas is guarding the Holy Grail. In the castle's forest, a youth, Parsifal, is apprehended for killing a swan Gurnamontz, a venerable knight, senses that this may be the pure fool who was prophesied as the savior of the physically and emotionally wounded Amfortas. When the Brotherhood's sacred rituals leave Parsifal uncomprehending, Gurnamontz sends him away. Parsifal finds himself in the magic garden of Klingzor, a sorcerer previously rejected from membership in the Grail Brotherhood. Klingzor sends the mysterious Tortured Kundry to seduce Parsifal. When she kisses him, he instantly understands Amfortas's suffering. Rejecting Kundry, he leaves to wander the world. Years later, he returns to the Grail Knights, mature and wise. He baptizes Kundry. He heals the wounded Amfortas, and he becomes the new guardian of the Grail. Okay, those are the events in a nutshell. But along with them come the questions and conclusions that each audience member draws from the piece in different ways. With our guests tonight, John Caird and Johann Engels, I'll hope to get to the heart of what the opera is really about and the challenges of presenting it on the stage. Wagner took an unusually long time to develop this piece to its final form, almost four decades, in fact. As usual, he served as his own librettist. He was in Marienbad in 1845, taking the cure there, as they say, and it was there that he first read the central literary source for the opera. That was the 13th century Arthurian romantic poem, Parsifal by Wolfram von Eschenbach. But according to Wagner's autobiography, it wasn't until nine years later that he actually conceived the opera, Parsifal. It was in the cottage near Zurich, where he was living at the time, and it was Good Friday. I awoke, he wrote, to find the sun shining brightly for the first time in this house. The little garden was radiant with green, the birds sang, and at last I could sit on the roof and enjoy the long yearned for peace with its message of promise, full of the sentiment I suddenly remembered that the day was Good Friday, and I called to mind the significance this this omen had already once assumed for me when I was reading Wolfram's Parsifal. Well, eleven years after that, he created the first of two prose sketches, of the libretto, combining the religious content with elements of the philosophy of one of his crucial influences and one of the most important figures of early 19th-century philosophy, Arthur Schopenhauer. The, the idea of compassion is at the heart of the opera, and Schopenhauer saw compassion as the highest form of morality in human beings. By the time Wagner came to compose the music of Parsifal, he had already left most of the traditions of German romantic opera behind with the astounding musical advances of Tristan und Isolde. You could say the same thing of Parsifal in spades. Over and over again, the sheer modernity of this music will leave any listener in awe. Tom Hampson said to me, I don't think you can listen to the second act of, of Parsifal and not completely accept that Strauss's Elektra was around the corner. Much of Wagner's career was spent writing what was still recognizably number opera. Even as late as Die Meistersinger in 1868, there were still individual arias and ensembles that could make an effect when pulled out of context. That is not the case at all in Parsifal. This isn't just a through composed work. There's exactly one ensemble for the Flower Maidens in Act 2, and it's not a number that could be separated from the overall fabric of the piece. The choral episodes, too, are totally integrated into the overall design, and while there are monologues, one can't view them as arias, per se. They carry the story forward while exhibiting nothing that would remotely smack of opportunities for vocal display. Every vocal line for The Principles is meant to reveal the essence of a character, the orchestra, as usual in the mature operas of Wagner, is a character on its own, and Wagner's detailed, expressive markings show show the way to a total connection between the orchestra and every nuance of the singing. This piece premiered at the Second Bayreuth Festival in 1882. For nearly 20 years, although there were some concert performances, it was only permissible to stage it in Bayreuth, it wasn't until 1903 that Parsifal finally arrived in this country with a Met scoring the great coup of presenting the American premiere. Wagner, whose 200th birth anniversary we're celebrating this year, died in 1883. He probably would have been distressed to know that Parsifal has traveled the world since it was his only work to be created specifically for Bayreuth. And he believed that only at Bayreuth could its potential be realized as he envisioned it. Fortunately, Lyric Opera and other major opera houses have memorably demonstrated that Parsifal can make an unforgettable impact in any house with the resources to meet the vocal, orchestral, dramatic, and scenic requirements that make it one of the most challenging works in the repertoire. I would like now to introduce our guests. Since making his professional debut in 1977, British director John Carrad has earned a reputation as one of the most innovative theatrical figures of our time. During the past nine years, he's moved into opera with Don Carlos, Aida, and Don Giovanni at Welsh National Opera, Don Carlos, Tosca, and Andre Previn's Brief Encounter, for which he wrote the libretto, at Houston Grand Opera, La Boheme in Houston, San Francisco, and Toronto. He co-directed the legendary Nicholas Nickleby at the Royal Shakespeare Company, where he has directed more than 20 productions from 1977 to 1990. Among his musical theater achievements in London and New York are Les Miserables, which he co-adapted and co-directed, Song and Dance, Jane Eyre, his adaptation of Bernstein's Candide for London's National Theater, and his adaptation of Gene Webster's novel Daddy Longlegs, which opened in London last autumn. He's had great success at successes at the National Theatre, among them The Seagull with Judi Dench, Peter Pan with Ian McKellen as Captain Hook, Hamlet, and the world premiere of Humble Boy with Diana Rigg. He's Honorary Associate Director of the Royal Shakespeare Company and Principal Guest Director of Stockholm's Royal Dramatic Theatre. Johan Engels, a native of South Africa, is one of today's foremost theatrical designers. Among his recent projects have been Faust at the Opéra National de Paris, Il Tritico at the Opéra de Lyon, Matisse der Mahler at Vienna's Théâtre Wien, The Magic Flute at the Bregen's Festival and the Vienna Folk's Opera, Lulu at Welsh National Opera, and Weinberg's The Passenger, a much-acclaimed co-production of the Bregen's Festival, English National Opera, Poland's National Theatre, and Israeli Opera. The Passenger figures prominently in Mr. Engel's long-standing collaboration with British director David Pountney, with productions also including Turandot at the Salzburg Festival and such rarely heard works as Nielsen's Masquerade in Bregenz and at Covent Garden, Janáček's Fate, at the Vienna Staatsoper and Smetna's The Devil's Wall in Prague. Mr. Engels' work has also been seen at Britain's Opera North, the Vienna Volksoper, the Zurich Ballet, the Opera de Monte Carlo, the major companies of Marseille, Madrid, and Geneva, Chicago Opera Theater, Houston Grand Opera, and Los Angeles Opera. Please join me in welcoming John Caird and Johann Engels. we're going to talk for just a little bit, and then we'll have some images to project that I'll ask both gentlemen to comment on. Okay. I'm curious as to what the first experience was with this piece for both of you, both as listeners and as audience members seeing it in a theater. Do you recall what your gut response was to it at the time? My first response, I suppose, to seeing a production of Parsifal, I
1: suppose I saw my first one about 20 years ago. Again, I mean, I've seen several productions over the years at the Met at Covent Garden. And my, while enormously enjoying the music, I always felt that the action seemed to be happening in slow motion. And that's one of the great challenges, I think, with this work, is that... Um, Unless you're careful, that the, the work pulls you towards being oratorio rather than opera. There's, there's something inherently... There's a, there's a draw towards it being inherently static in terms of its action. And that's one of the great things, I think, that designers and directors have to solve when they address this work.
3: Johan, what was your first experience of the piece?
2: Um, I was an observer at... Um, in 1980 in Bayreuth, and I saw I saw an old uh, production by um, Wolfgang Wagner, um, which was my first production. I knew the piece as a, from recordings, but I was totally unprepared of how overwhelming it was, sitting in the fourth row and at Bayreuth. It was just uh, an experience I will never forget. Whether one is religious or whether you're not, it was just um, that memory that's that still uh, was totally ingrained in my mind.
3: So course. the theater environment itself had everything to do with the effect that the piece had on you probably, because you were in the theater for which it was written.
2: Yes, absolutely, and I think this is where we we must appreciate before the days of recordings how these people were uh, absolutely, amaz- by hearing it once in Bayreuth in the 1890s, How this piece must have uh, been, you know, fascinated you by not being able to, to hear it again. You know? And this was, I think, my experience. Uh,
3: John, I know you consider redemption the piece's overall theme, but I've seen it stated so often that it's, it's a combination of compassion and redemption together. Do you agree with that? How do these two ideas sort of coalesce in the course of the piece? Um,
1: well, the, the prophecy that is foretold in the piece is um, a prophecy that Amfortas, as it were, sees in letters of fire on a wall or whatever, or in his imagination. And that is that the terrible troubles of the community of Monsalva will be will be cured by a holy fool who will somehow bring redemption to the, to the place. But redemption can only be brought by the man who understands compassion. And indeed, the whole story that Wagner has based the opera on, the, the, the novel that you referred to by the poem, epic poem by, by Wolfgang von, von Eschenbach. Um, Monsalvat is one of those places that you can only get to by accident. Oh, it's like Narnia. Um, and this is in the, in the Eschenbach story it's not so much in the Wagner and so Parsifal is simply one of King Arthur's Round Table Knights who's wandering around Europe Um, the Round Table and King Arthur seem to have been based somewhere in Brittany or Normandy or somewhere like that Um, and Parsifal wanders about and by an extraordinary series of magical happenstances he sort of breaks through the barrier that protects Monsalvat. And when he gets in there, he finds that the ruler of, of the, the kingdom, sort of part kingdom, part monastery, um, King Amfortas, has been mortally wounded. And it's made very clear by um, von Eschenbach that the one thing that Parsifal has to do to be allowed to stay in Monsalvat and to benefit from being in the presence of the Grail the grail is a sort of magical stone. It may also be the cup that held, the, the, that Christ used at the Last Supper, that's, you know, can, it is the central emblem of Christianity. Um, but the daily or weekly revealing of the grail to the to those who are elected to be close to it actually gives you physical sustenance. In the Eschenbach story, it, it, it magically creates food and drink so that it's party time when the grail is is revealed. Um, the Eschenbach story is much less obviously religious than the Wagner story. Um, and Parsifal then is introduced to Amfortas, who is in terrible pain, and he's dumbstruck. He can't he can't sympathize with him. Something immature in, in Parsifal stops him from simply saying the words, can I help you? Or what's the matter with you? Or what's happened to you? Is there anything I can do to alleviate your pain? He says nothing. And it, it, Eschenbach makes clear is all he needs to do is to ask the question, and he can't. And that means he's thrown out of that kingdom. He, he goes back through the, the impossible wall, and is never to find it again. I mean, that's, that's the terrible outer darkness he's put into. And the questing that you talk about, years after he, he meets Kundry in Klingsaw's Magic House, the questing is a quest to get back to Monsalvat. But because he's looking, he can't find it. And it's only by another set of happenstances that he he gets into the wardrobe and gets back into Narnia again. Um, and by that time he knows the what question he, he has to ask, because he has experienced the 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 pain and distress of his own life to the point when he has understood that one human being's compassion for another is, in the end, all we have.
3: Right. Thank you. Um, I want to come back to the piece itself, but first I want to talk to both of you about the creative process between director and designer because I think it's very much a mystery to all of us who go to performances. We see this miraculous thing on the stage and we just wonder how... You know, how, what, what the, the thought processes exactly were between a duo creating that production for us. Um, and it's, it's especially fascinating with a piece as complex as this with so many layers to it. So I'm sure everyone in our audience tonight would be intrigued to hear about how you actually began. Where did you start as a team in thinking, what do we want to accomplish here? Well, I think we started by sort of telling each other the
1: story, didn't we? As, as we feel it. It's one of those operas that it, it's got an enormous amount of space in it for interpretation. Um, although Wagner is quite limiting in the way he writes his stage directions very, very specifically. Um, a director designer team really can only take those as hints, I think. And from that, you know that the, as a pair you have to create a world, a, a world that is as coherent visually as the score is coherent musically.
2: Yes, I, I find it interesting uh, in our in uh, John and my work together before, um, and in the difference this is in when I work with other directors or with every director you work with, you have a a different. Uh, A set of of vocabulary. You build up years of David Poutney where I've done 28 productions with him now and so suddenly you know of course there is a shorthand between us and sometimes we don't even speak speak you know he puts something before me. But at the same time as with with John I work together. For me uh, 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 Wagner is, this is why I always think it's a bit like a Shakespeare play, it's a wonderful piece of work printed on a piece of paper, but where it comes to life, as with Wagner, is when it is staged. And this, you don't need a recreation of all these different spaces in the set. You need a, and as Shakespeare could allow you to imagine every possible place in the Globe Theater. Parsifal, uh, uh, Wagner also gives us, in in this piece, uh, uh, a stage, you know, that you can, you know, something that you can weigh you can tell the story without being particularly too specific So you know it's a, and, and so my work that I know of John's before was through the Royal Shakespeare Company. So I've always approached our work in a way as if we were doing a Shakespeare play and and I think this is where I felt it was a very strong part of John's um, vocabulary on the stage and and how to how to do, A play in a space? How do you opera in a space? And I mean, this is what our design really reflects. Uh, As you will see, there's not a different, complete different set for each uh, scene, but it's actually a space that's transformed because I I feel this is, it's the kind of space that John works very well with and in. So, I mean, this is where once history comes into play when you start working together with somebody.
3: Well, let's actually go through. We have the sets, and then we have several costume sketches, so I would love both of you to comment as we proceed. This is, I believe, act one, scene one. Yes, Um, it's a forest.
1: (laughs) Um, The first act, but the way our production is going to begin is without, you won't see the trees there to start with. What you see is eight little boys coming on. Wagner gives you a problem at the beginning of the opera because he, he creates an all-male world. I mean, his Montservat is less of a kingdom and more of a monastery. It's a sort of monastic, all, all-male world. But he, he wants to start with two little boys and an old man, Gurnemanz. <laughs> But because he writes such huge sounds in the orchestra, there's no way that two little boys are going to be heard above the sound of the orchestra. So he has to use two mature sopranos. So it's rather odd that in this all-male world, the first three characters you see is an old man and two women. Um, So I don't have those women on at the beginning. I bring them on only when they sing. And by that time, you've seen a lot of youngsters, adolescents, really quite little boys as well. Because I want to give, tell the audience the story that these knights are being bred from a very, very young age to grow up in this dysfunctional world, this all-male dysfunctional place where there's nothing but pain and distress and difficulty, and nobody can work out quite what's wrong with it. Um, And then Gunnermans comes in after the children have all bedded down and gone to sleep. It's nighttime. And he invokes the forest. And these trees grow up out of the stage. This is during the prelude of the opera. So that Johann's done this brilliant thing of actually having the trees growing through these holes in the stage. So that the audience can actually see the forest growing as, as if it were over a, a couple of hundred years. So you get the sense that these little boys grow up and they'll be replaced by other boys and other boys and other boys. This is the next scene. This is the forest transforms into the grail hall.
2: I'd just like to say that there's a great uh, argument. I mean, Wolfgang Wagner was the one living uh, of the Wagner... Uh, Family that would still uh, very vocally comment his ideas um, would always travel wherever. Wherever I did a I did a ring in Marseille and I did a Tristan Isolde in South Africa, and he would he was at every one of the opening nights. And the one thing he always argued or disagreed with, he would love the production, but he said you shouldn't stage the prelude. The sta- the prelude is music, and and of course one. We disagree with that. We think that is the most visual music that Wagner's ever written. And if he'd ever seen a film, if he'd ever seen all the new uh, techniques of, 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 of uh, technology, of he would have staged the prelude.
3: Wolfgang meant the prelude of any Wagner opera? I beg your pardon? Did Wolfgang, did Wolfgang mean the prelude of any opera, of, yes. of Wagner?
2: Wolfgang, yes, he disagreed with the, with the staging. He thought it should be a closed curtain. And the, so it was, it's very interesting that we, we, we tell, there's so much to tell in the
1: prelude. Uh, and the music tells you so much, so why not? The, the other problem with not having anything going on visually in a great big opera house is that the audience are all sitting there and they're all looking at the orchestra. So they're being told a story already. There's orchestra lights on, there's a maestro conducting, there's a big, there's a big curtain. I mean, they're looking at things anyway. They might be looking at their programme or looking at each other. You know, And I, I think by staging the, the prelude in a, in a very um, minimal way, it's not chaotic with movement, you induce in the audience a sense that something great and mysterious is about to happen before finally the characters start to sing. Because singing is only one part of Wagner's music. The accompaniment to the singing is, is the, the emotion, the music that is too deep for words. But those, that music can also accompany things that you can see but not hear. And that seems to be an, a very important thing to start the audience on at the beginning of the evening.
3: I'm curious um, about the floor. Does the floor remain the same throughout? No, I, I, I would like to, I'm going to be
2: totally uh, unapologetic about my, uh, when, we, when we created the space and, and, and very much this act, and of course we have the 15 minutes of music that Wagner allows you to change from the forest almost into the first moment this scene happened. There's this is vast a visual scene change, which would be a criminal to bring a curtain down. So we do it all open. So every in a way that you do with Shakespeare, this this transforms before your eyes and the, the whole um, sense of time gets warped in this piece, as Wagner said. As, as, uh, Gordon says in this piece. So, um, you know, going into this floor, when you have such a, in a way, a ritual. I suppose it's a ritual that happens. And if you if you analyze every other shape, that could possibly a ritual could happen in a square or a diamond or a oblong. A circle is the, for me the most powerful. And of course, immediately, my history and my I, this is a. Total unapologetic nod to, Willem Wagner's productions. Of course, because he also realised that a circle was the most powerful shape, and m- most of his rings were on a circle. his parts of But it's not that I. It's just that when you start going there, and in, you know, it just it happens that these things is the best shape. So the floor is very very important. Yes, and 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 uh, no, it doesn't stay the same. It uh, as Has to happen in the end. The whole Grail has to fall apart, so the floor disintegrates and.
3: Do we want to talk about the mighty hand, or do we want to leave that? No, I think we should. I think it's 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 very
1: interesting. Um, I mean, you you talked in the in the your uh, preface to the to this talk that you talked about Schopenhauer and Wagner being influenced by Schopenhauer, and that's certainly true. And there is evidence in this piece, especially to do with the story he tells about compassion, redemption through compassion, that Schopenhauer was to some extent on his mind. But there is also no question that the piece is absolutely riddled with Christian iconography, Christian symbolism and metaphor the Holy Grail, Christ dying on the cross, Kundry laughing at Christ dying on the cross. The wound that Amphortas has is the same as the, the wound... Amphotas is Christ to some great extent. Kundry is Mary Magdalene, as well as a lot of other things. <laughs> I mean, it's never ever quite completely simple. Um, but the, the reference to Christian symbolism is absolutely overt. You, you can't avoid it. It, it, it. It's staring you in the face over and over again. But the conversation that Johann and I had very, very early on was Johann saying, "Let's not do crucifixes. Let's not, because the the, the visual imagery of Christianity exc- will exclude half your audience. And it also isn't. It isn't really about that. Although Wagner spent many of his final years visiting cathedrals. He spent a lot of time in Italy. And it would perhaps be mischievous to think that he was writing Parsifal in order to hedge his bets. Um, To some extent, he is quite consciously trying to write a requiem or a passion. I think he knew it was his last work. he thought of himself as a, as a composer, as great as Bach and Beethoven. And I think the decision to write something deeply religious that would somehow connect with the depth of, uh, the profundity of those other great ecclesiastical works, I think that was on his mind when he was creating the work. But the gold hand is Johann's wonderful response to our, our conversation about let's find our own imagery that could somehow be created by the Monsalvat knighthood over hundreds of years. And the hand is a wonderful sister, uh, a symbol of humanity, friendship. Um, the well, You can't see very well in the picture, but the figure of Ticharel actually sits in the hand. Father of Amfortas. This is the father of Amfortas. Ticharel it's very difficult to know whether he's he is actually alive. He talks about he's, he speaks to Amfortas from the grave it's difficult to tell whether um, it's only Amfortas who can hear his voice. Um, probably that's true um, and but he is to, to some extent alive because in the in the third act he has just died but I think it's also, it, he's, he is the sort of emeritus king, if you like, but he is also God the Father. So that at the beginning of Act 3, Wagner is saying, God has now died. It, is, it has got that serious. The silence of God has become now irrevocable. So so now's the moment for the Messiah to come back, if, if ever it's the right moment.
2: Yes, I, I found it very interesting when I, um, and and, and for, especially that we're here in the Institute of Art, because when you walk through the British Museum, where I spent hours walking through, if you if you look at the use of the hand through history, and in all kinds of beliefs from Egyptian, through and its whole evolution of of the hand when it was used, and eventually, attained, the, the origins of a, of very pagan. The hand is a very pagan image that eventually is Christianized through the two, the three fingers of the Holy Trinity. The, the way that the hand is formed is, is eventually, the, becomes a Christian symbol. But the, its origins are absolutely pagan. So it has a, it's something which one feels when you walk through the British Museum. You see this different an Indian, Buddhism, all religious and, and, and even non-religious, uh, just sculptural things. People painted, the first thing they did, the the, the first paintings we know of in in, um, in prehistoric times with people blowing paint, red paint, over their hand, leaving an imprint of the hand. The hand was a, not their foot or something strange, it was the hand that became a symbolic uh, image. So, uh, and, and so through the years, and, and Christianity made, you know, took over this and all other religions. But we consciously didn't put it in the Christian position. We just did the hand so that it would not be, we would avoid this, this symbolism of, of Christianity.
1: And the lovely thing that, that uh, Johann has added to this, which you'll see when you come to see the production, is that each knight can, takes off an outer black glove to reveal an inner gold glove. So that one of the symbols of being a full knight of the Grail is that you have the gold hand as well, and it can be raised as a sort of religious or um, fraternal salute, and almost be like a an aerial that that allows Titular to speak to Amfortas.
3: I think you the two of you have come up with a brilliant solution for the challenges of the second act, which starts. With Klingzor's lair, and suddenly we're in a world of red. It, I think it's brilliant. It's beautiful. But that, John, didn't you say to me in our first conversation, when we talked about your your first conversation with Johann, saying that the music is, of this piece is so beautiful. This has to be a beautiful production to look at.
1: Yes, I think that's what that's certainly one of the challenges. Um, you can't. Oh, I'm sorry. Your your response there. to Wagner's music cannot be you know, let's do something brutalist, because actually he's talking about brutal and difficult things. I think the the visual imagery of the piece has to be as beautiful as the music, in its way, as beautiful as the music.
3: So it, what did you envision for... Well here,
1: Johann has just turned the entire stage into an enormous flower. Yeah, really. well, <laughs> well, eventually we, we, we,
2: we, we get to the flower of it, but, but in a way, the, the, the fact that, that uh, Clingsaw uh, pulls Kundry from another world through these time warps or whatever he travels across. I mean, it, it first of all, it was again a, a thing that became like a vortex, something that goes into a hole in, in which we can lift, uh, we can lift Clingsaw into the air or, or lower. So, I mean, it's a, it starts like that. It starts as this red, and the music is so that that, prelude is so slightly demonic in a way it's uh, his control of the world and all these people so and um, that that so again it's a very simple just by changing the color of the light and being able to light through the floor and we we change this world into something which you know you have to now continue because now we have the flower the maidens and, and all the difficult let's get, things.
3: Let's get to the flower maidens. Yes, are, that, doesn't, yes. that doesn't
1: quite show what Johannes that, designed in that it looks like a white silk and it's actually a richly colored silk so that this is after Klingsor has disappeared for the first time leaving Kundry to do her work on Parsifal. He, he's pulled her back from Monsalvat in order to get her to seduce Parsifal. As she once seduced Amfortas, and, and we actually rehearsed this today. It was a bit of a question as to whether or not it was going to work technically, but it was wonderful. Um, Forty flower maidens pull the silk down stage.: Did you say 40?
3: 40: yeah. Wow Well
1: 46, actually you know, 46 flower maidens pull the silk downstage, stage, and it billows wonderfully and um, Actually, fifty because there are four dancers as well. Sorry, <laughs> it's going up, um, and um, the center, the very center of the flower, has a lift, and Klingsoe can go tw- twenty feet up in the air on top of it, so that when he's looking out, it becomes his tower. He stands in his tower, looking over the countryside and seeing, seeing the Parsifal coming, um, and then at the height of. I don't know how many of you know the opera well, but right in the middle of Act Two, you get this madly demonic music opening Act Two for Klingsor. It's the most complex and chromatic thing that Wagner ever wrote. You don't know what the key is. It's, it's, it's really mad music. And then Klingsor the magician, invokes the magic garden. And the music is suddenly transformed. It's tonal, it's absolutely ravishingly beautiful. It's unlike any music you've heard in the opera up until that point. It's as if we're in a different opera for a moment. It's, it's, it's very remarkable, the trans, transformation. But emotionally and intellectually, what it's indicative of is that actually what we're being shown is an illusion. These aren't real Flowers. These aren't real women. These are these are people who've been conjured up by Klingsor in order to seduce, so that the imagery is completely fake. And at the end of the scene, when Parsifal resists Kundry and takes the holy spear from Klingsor and challenges Klingsor, Klingsor rises again up to the top of the tower and the silk is ripped away. And under the silk are revealed 20 women who are the same as some of the flower maidens we've seen, but they're not flowers anymore. They're just poor, cold, frightened, captured women who've been held against their will in this place.
3: Wow. Johann, is there something you'd like to add about this scene?
1: Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think this is
2: where it, where practicality rears its ugly head in the theater because I don't know about yourself or, or, or the members of the audience, but this is one scene that that has been responsible for the most embarrassing moments of our opera careers, of opera <laughs> experience, because I've never seen in my life sort of big, enormous, plaited flowers and of vast, size, various size, flower maidens that pretend to be seductive. But I mean, it's, this is where you just close your eyes and say, just let's just hear the music. <laughs> so come to this moment. Uh, the designer has to solve this problem. And, and just think, what am I going to do now? How am I going to get 50 women? And a woman has a great, uh, uh, you know, women, you know, any size can be sensuous. But just, Um, but you know, how do you dress them? How do you dress them that they... So of course, and I was thrilled this evening when when uh, the photograph of of the the, the lithograph of Loie Fuller was shown because I knew she was American but I had no idea she was from Chicago. And of course this is where I where of course the wonderful thing about uh, art and theater and opera uh, coincide because I she did extraordinary um, performances, sometimes on billowing silk. So, looking at all these images, it's her 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 costumes and her dancers suddenly, um, I was aware that they looked like flowers. They were extraordinary in these extended. Some of her larger costumes were had something like twelve foot long extensions. And and the way she could deal with them and the way she could, it was all pure silk and it has to be, the way she moved with them, formed these incredible uh, shapes. So I thought, well, my goodness, this is maybe what we do if we dress the women so that they look, they're the simplest shapes if they, in their costumes, hand-painted silks. So that's uh, very difficult to model the scene because it's all bright colors and flower colors, so that then each flower maiden becomes a flower by simply either breathing these, and they all have extensions in their costumes, which can either extend their shapes, you know, with sticks, and... So they have
3: to do all of that and sing at the same time. Yeah, we did well, it today. You know, they're, really, <laughs> they're really wonderful. <laughs> wow. I, I, I was
1: amazed. They just chucked themselves in and got on with it. It was fantastic.
3: I want to get to Act 3 and also to our costume sketches, so... Um, I believe that's the first scene of Act Three? Yes, that's right. When Gurnemanz finds Kundry. Um, yeah. how has, What sort of change do you want to present because some, quite a few years have gone by?
1: Well, the, there are now only three trees growing there. We're in a different part of the forest, I suppose, and what Johan's done is to create a labyrinth. You probably, can you see there that you can walk all the way around it by a circuitous route and finally end up in the middle. One of the, one of the great difficulties here is that when Parsifal makes his entrance, it's a very, very long entrance, and they're singing about him all the way, so that while he's entering, he can walk all the way around that labyrinth and end up in the middle. Kundry also, who makes her first entrance in act one on a magic horse that flies through the air all the way from Arabia. Talk about design problems. <laughs> Um, and it's, it's, you have to solve that. You know, you can't just have people pointing up in the air and saying, look, there she goes. You know, <laughs> you, you, if, 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 she's, if it's in the script that she arrives on a horse from Arabia, well, that's what you've got to show in the audience, I think. Um, and it, it's very important, you know, if, because it's, it's a crucial part of the story. A woman who will ride on a magic horse all the way to Arabia and back just to get some balsam to help a man's pain that tells a very interesting story about her relationship to that man which you have to honor and so in the third act she returns again from her terrible ordeal in the in Klingsall's kingdom with Parsifal so she has to make the journey around the labyrinth to, to return back possibly on a on a very tired magical horse <laughs> um, and Parsifal has to come back. And the set also requires part of the lake. So in those holes in the stage, downstage, um, Johann has built in a, a water feature so that Kundry and Parsifal can stand in the water, be, be baptized, baptize each other in turn.
3: And then when we move to the final scene, we What's are looking happened at, to the hand? We're
1: looking at the same grail hall as 10 years ago, but it's destroyed. Terrible misfortune has happened to the, to the knighthood. The hand is now lying on its back. It's fallen like the statue of Ozymandias in the desert. The pillars are lying sideways. The, the grail knights are in rags. Um, they're, they're sick. Titurel has died. He'll be in a stretcher down there. His his mummified, gold wrapped body will be, downstage.
3: I'm curious as to how those columns, Johan, are created because, in the photograph, it looks they're sort of transparent. But what is the material that's actually creating them?
2: They are. They are. They are transparent. They. They. I mean, it was something that developed. This transformation from trees into columns in the first act—they—they uh, they, they sort of mirror each other in a way that the the trees either just become the the shape of 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 the Grail Hall, and in a way so that it's a it's almost uh, I just use this all these materials we can modern materials we can find now, so it's a it's a it's just an interesting transformation we have another ten fifteen minutes of this transformation where you see the the the, the, the men arriving at this place so we 've taken a lot of this the whole floor breaks up people can crawl out of these holes it 's a completely destroyed grail world um, and the costumes will the way they are they're worn and the crutches and people are, are are injured or have walked so very very much of that but it 's it 's sort of um, it's trees turned into columns where this, where this comes from. You know.
1: I think anybody who's sat in a great old Renaissance cathedral has had that thought, this is just a huge stone forest. And sometimes one sits in the middle of an extraordinarily beautiful forest and you think, this is like a great big natural cathedral.
2: Yes, indeed, Gothic architecture was completely inspired by by, forest. by nature by forests and the way that the roofs would splay out I mean it was and that's Wagner's
1: intention I think to to yes. celebrate the natural world by then turning it into the
3: We have the some costume sketches for most of the major characters for example there's Parsifal act 1 in contrast with Parsifal act 3 so what is that second costume telling us that we didn't know before I mean, he him.
2: makes a big journey. I mean, it's the one character that we see his entire journey. He's this, he's this innocent child, this simplicious character in a way that has grown up in the forest, that has no idea that, what he's called for. So it's, in fact, the only costume where, where he's actually looking very normal. He, he's sewn his own costume with the, he has cloaks, you know, skins, and it's all made of leather and patched together, and so then, then we see him slowly. There have four different guises that Parsifal goes through until he arrives after his thing. And they, this may, and the strange black figure that they comment, they sing about for about fifteen minutes before you realise it is Parsifal. Um, well, you might have an idea. He's travelled, so he's travelled the world. So maybe the references of, to the Japanese slightly summarised. I don't know where it comes from, but it, it's just a strange creature that that eventually turns up and who has attained this wisdom and realized what he was called for.
3: Then we have also Kundry. We have her in her two act two guises, that's when she is with Klingzor and then there she is when she is with Parsifal. Yes, this is a
1: couture version. Kundry, Kundry as a character is very, very strange. Um, when Wagner was writing the opera, he started by imagining more than one female character in it, and he slowly narrowed it down until he found that he could put all of the female characters into this one person. But she is a strange mixture. In the Eschenbach original story, she's a monstrous, demonic sorceress with a hairy face. and mad eyes and crazy corkscrew hair, who wears rags, but is actually more intelligent than any of the men. She's an intellectual. She's, she's, a, a, she's studied deeply in necromancy. Um, and there are other women in the Eschenbach story that are more like the sirens from Act Two that, um, that Kundry turns into. But Wagner simply has a morphing from one of these personalities into another.
3: Then we have, that's Amfortas. Does he have the same costume for his two? Yeah,
2: he's just, I mean, there's this one thing that we, we've used throughout. You can see his body is bandaged because of his wound that will not heal. So I took this, and you can see Kundry is also, everybody that seems to have gone through through amfortas's um Af- Amfortas um Klingso's, um Clotid. control or whatever is is left with this i've I've used these bandaged uh, symbol it's almost like bandages always means that you're wounded or something, but I've used it throughout the whole piece and uh, and especially in the last act, all the men we see are bandaged too because they've all been wounded they're all struggling to attain this thing. So uh, he, he just drags around an enormous cloak, a kingly cloak around the stage. And of course, uh, Thomas Hampson is six foot six and uh, he, doesn't,
1: um, he doesn't have problems dragging. But it's the... It's the <laughs> we, we had our first rehearsal with Tom on Monday and Tuesday and he's responding wonderfully to the idea of Amfortas being a sort of titanic, King Lear-like figure. Um, he Wagner has him lying on a litter, on a on a sort of couch the whole time in agony, unable to move. But that makes him a very static character who doesn't, who isn't fighting against his wound. I think what's more interesting is that he's one of those men who can't bear being ill. He 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 fights against it. He hates people helping him. Um, but he's in such pain that at times he has to accept help. But that hurts him mentally and spiritually more than anything else. We all know people like that.
3: Here we have Klingzor and his assistants. So Klingzor maybe,
1: maybe a bit
2: of Japanese influence again, which is all in one's head as a designer. I don't know where it all comes from. You know, you you take things, but it's a it's a character that 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 we decided to those two figures around him, they're actually the two halves of a cloak that can either envelop him like a chrysalis or release him. so he doesn't have to wear this coat. you can see the one hand is the red hand and can carry the spear. So this cloak, these people that form his cloak in a way, they become these uh, helpers or whatever, but they can envelop him, spit him out. you know they it's just part of
1: Klingso's control you know which is um. we, we're helped enormously in this production we've cast four wonderful dancers because what Wagner requires of you for instance in the first act Kundry has to arrive on a horse so you have to make the horse out of something um, a swan flies over the lake three swans fly over the, way, the lake and rather than have do it with film or with some sort of animated, stuffed birds. Um, we've got these wonderful ballet dancers who- I'd actually like to advance so we can, can see you have them. A look?
3: There are the flower maids and here there, are the that's swans. The,
1: so that the swans rise up over the lake. And it means also that when the dead swan is brought in, Parsifal kills a swan with an arrow, and the dead swan is brought in and he's faced with what he's done the this, this swan is played by a child. Um, it's one of the things that Wagner picks up from, Amfort, from, from Schopenhauer, um, the idea that all life is sacred, that human life is no more sacred than animal life. And it's very difficult to suggest, if you bring in a prop, a, just a, a stuffed bird, or a dead swan, so the audience sit there thinking, Do you think that's a real dead swan, or is it it just come out from the taxidermist, or is, you know, whatever the question is in their mind, they'll be thinking the wrong thing. Whereas if you have a a figure who is obviously not a real swan, it's a symbolic swan, but it's also obviously a real human being, then the the deep um, severity of, of Parsifal's crime, is underlined. Yes, I, I would just like to say also, some of my
2: most memorable experiences in the theatre uh, have been in some of John's productions. I mean, uh, any of you who know his work in Nicholas Nickleby was the kind of thing that, that happened at the time, and it was incredibly groundbreaking, and has now been perhaps repeated in The War Horse, and the, is that by just by just throwing a few crates onto together and piling them up, and it suddenly turned the props into a carriage you could make out of any combination of things on the stage without having a carriage you could evoke a carriage and for me this is the essence of theatre it's our imagination who allows you to see those things and when I work with John I remember these things and for me we always so swans don't necessarily be swans, they can be they, they evoke swans They the horses uh, three women and, and three three people create can create a horse. You know, you can, you can let the imagination of the audience come
1: with you, you know, play with you, and this is where... An audience is except work. whatever you tell them, really. But that's, that's the marvellous thing about being an audience. If, if you bring on a boy with one long draping wing and you say, you've killed the swan, look. The audience say, yeah, it's a swan. I believe that. <laughs> if you say it's a swan, it's a swan.
3: Here are the two versions of the flower maidens that you were talking about before. I asked. well, um, the ones that we see on the right; those are the the women that you talked about that were revealed at the end of the, released, the act. Is that the released women? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then those on the left, I take it, are those are the Loewy Fuller. Costumes. Yes. Those yeah.
2: are just the small Louis filler costumes. Yeah.
1: There are much bigger ones <laughs> But so. these, these are the, the same women. So, so the women, this yes. is, they're transformed.
3: Um, that brings me to my penultimate question, which is, this production does something very innovative in terms of the performance history of Parsifal and that it brings women onto the stage at the end, at least that was yes. my understanding, yes. And so, John, can you talk a bit about the role that you want women to play in the final scene? Well, it's always mystified me about this opera,
1: that the Eschenbach story upon which it's based is full of women. Um, knights go out on quests all the time, like Parsifal, Gawain, Lancelot, all these people are questing all the time. But whatever quests they're going on, the reason they're going is always because of a woman they're only leaving on quest in order to prove something to a woman. If they kill a giant or capture a castle, the prisoner has to go back to the woman that they love and say, I've been sent here by Sir Gawain and he beat me and it was fair game and I'm sorry. You know, so everything is done for the service of women. And for some reason, um, and one would have to be um, Richard Richard Wagner's psychoanalyst, to to tell exactly what reason. Um, He has decided to eliminate women from the story, all but one woman from the story, until you get to Klingsau's realm, and then you have the flower maidens, and then they disappear and you don't see them again. The only other evidence of women in the story are these beautiful voices you hear in the grail hall. And some of the voices of boys, very clearly, but it's not just boys' voices. There are very clearly female voices. So it, that made me think, well, just a minute. Let's look at this story. Montsalvat is a sick realm. Ticharel, the, the old king, is dying, dead or dying. Amfortas is mortally ill. At the end of the story, the new holy fool, messiah comes back and becomes the new king. Amfortas retires, becomes Titoral, dies, is released from life by the curing of his wounds so that he can die respectably. Who knows? But Parsifal becomes the new king and nothing's changed. It's still this all-male dysfunctional world. Why isn't it going to happen all over again? Some new knight will go off questing, be captured by some outsider. The whole thing will start again. Why wouldn't it start again? That's always the question I've had at the end of, of seeing this opera. And so I think what I want Parsifal to realize when Kundry kisses him at the end of Act Two, he realizes not just what Amfortas's agony is all about. But he understands that this woman belongs with Amfortas. She can't be his woman. She's already been taken. And also he understands what's wrong with the Monsalvat generally is that communities shouldn't be like that. It's It's not right. It doesn't work to have single gender communities trying to find a way of, of worshipping without any access to the other gender of course it's going to go wrong so when he says to Kundry at the end of Act 2 I can't be with you but I'm, I'm going now and you know where to find me she understands as do all the other women there that they have to make a journey to follow him so that in the, in the Good Friday aria, when he's singing about the beauty of the meadows that he's looking at, and he's remembering the stunning beauty of the flowers he once saw in this magic place, these women return, quietly return to Montsalvat during that aria, and grieve and atone and arrive back And then they disappear again, and then at the climax of Act Three, when Amphortas is cured, and Parsifal Parsifal claims the kingship, as the women's voices come in, the women themselves also join the men, so that the final communion is with men and women and children all together in functional, social, uh, context, and we, we never have to live through that, that dysfunction again.
3: Amazing. I don't think that's ever been tried in Parsifal production before. I bet it has. <laughs> uh, I want to ask both of you in conclusion, you know, this piece deeply challenges its audience. So what – how would you advise audiences to prepare to receive what it has to offer them.
2: You go first. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I think it's, I mean, I've had the incredible privilege of now working on it for two weeks with these wonderful singers. And it's a very strange thing. It's a very long opera. It's nearly five hours long. But the astonishing thing is that when you get buried in it, time seems to stand still. It doesn't seem long, because every bar is somehow fascinating. Something's going on in every bar of the music. It's the relationships between the characters. But also, Wagner very generously, I think, allows the audience to investigate their own feelings about things while, while the opera is happening. So. In some ways, it's a deeply contemplative work. It's definitely a religious work, but it's not religious like going to church is religious. Maybe going to church can be religious It can be contemplative in that way. But it allows you just to imagine how you are in relation to the themes of the opera, in relation to incurable pain, loss. Loss of a loved one, um, a life journey being unproductive, the death of a child—you know—all all these things that he's exploring, the incapacity to love. These are all things that we all know about at first hand, in one way or another, and he allows us to contemplate those things and and to leave the opera at the end of the evening, cleansed. And thoughtful, and perhaps ourselves, just that little bit more compassionate than we were when we went in.
2: I I uh, I always go um, I have, I, whenever I am given a new piece to do, that I've never heard the music of Passenger, which will be coming to Chicago uh, in a few years' time, was one of them. But at the moment uh, I, I I have a, a sort of a ritual where I lock my doors, turn off the telephone, and I. I listen to a piece of music completely undisturbed because it's this first impact um, of of music that for me means the most. I just let it completely invade me in a way and and, and it's usually those inst my my responses to that music that are the most important visual images for me. In the piece as well, and a, if I can remember when I heard it the first time, uh, Parsifal, I, you know, maybe this is what you have to do with Parsifal—you just have to let it absolutely invade you. You know, the performance—it is a, it's a mesmeric four and a half, five hours of, of music. You know, and um, it it still surprises me how I can listen to this piece. And get these renewed as I get older. Different set of emotions, as John says, different experiences come to light. So, so yes, I, I think it's a piece that you just have to allow, open yourself to this, and let it just take take your mind and your, you know, and your spirit. Ladies and gentlemen.
3: You have an extraordinary experience to look forward to with this production. I hope to see all of you there, and I want to thank our wonderful guests so much.
0: Thank you for listening to this edition of Backstage at Lyric. For more interactive content and to purchase tickets, visit lyricopera.org.